this is Jamda on the go your review of the content featured in Jamda the research focused monthly journal of Amda the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society a speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them their views or any entity they represent this podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host of Jamda on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello and welcome to Jamda on the Go for April 2022. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast and a longtime associate editor of Jamda. Today, we'll be talking about key issues related to surgery in older persons, drawing from this month's theme issue of JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. We'll be speaking, as usual, with JAMDA co-editor-in-chief, Dr. Phil Sloan, and associate editor, Dr. Mallory Brown. In addition, we're going to be joined today by a special guest, Dr. Jacqueline Portelli-Tremont, a research fellow in general surgery at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and one of the organizers of this theme issue. So welcome, Dr. Sloan Brown and Portelli Tremont. Thank you, thank you, glad to be here. Thank, thank you for you. having me. So uh, I just like to acknowledge how much I appreciate your efforts in conceiving and putting together a theme issue on this important topic. I think as geriatricians, we're often not as enthusiastic about putting our frail patients through invasive procedures as our surgical colleagues are, right? And so our patients often just want to have something tangible done to fix a perceived problem. So they often share the surgeon's enthusiasm about, you know, going full steam ahead. So to begin with, let me just ask why and how did Jamda's editors develop this theme issue on surgery and older persons? Well, Carl, over half of surgical procedures today are performed on persons 65 and older. And with increasingly sophisticated techniques, we're seeing more operations and operative decisions involving older persons with multi-morbidity. For this reason, collaboration between surgical and geriatric medicine specialists is increasingly important. So we developed this theme issue to highlight these um, issues. We assembled a steering committee of surgeons and geriatricians who are leaders and innovators in the areas of surgery for older adults and medical surgical collaboration. With their help, we were able to cast a wide net and received well over 70 submissions, 28 wow. of which were accepted and are in this month's issue of Jamda. Yeah, wow. And, and what an incredibly rich resource it is. So uh, let's get started. So what are the topics we're going to hit for this podcast? Phil? Well, I'll begin by talking about research and present guidelines around optimal perioperative management. Mm -hmm. A key element of that management is reducing surgical risk. I'll talk about that. Great, Mallory. And, and Jacqueline? I'll talk about how these principles can be adapted when surgery needs to be done urgently. Each of us will draw from several papers in the theme issue in our presentation. Great. All right, so let's dig right in. Dr. Sloan, what can you tell us about the current state of collaborative care around surgical problems in older adults? Well, this month's JAMDA has several research papers describing how formal collaboration between surgical services and geriatric-oriented medical practices 
improved outcomes. I'm going to highlight three of them here. The first is a retrospective cohort study describing the outcomes of hospital-based co-management model around patients undergoing vascular surgery in a tertiary hospital in Singapore. As you know, vascular surgery patients are typically you know, multi-morbid. They have high levels of ischemic heart disease, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, and quite a few have had a previous stroke. Right. So to improve outcomes, a co-management model was introduced involving geriatric medicine, vascular surgery, and of course, the Department of Nursing. Uh, the model included improved communication, a standard geriatric assessment prior to surgery, proactive interventions for patients at high risk of delirium, daily treatment optimization of comorbid conditions during the perioperative period, active medication management to avoid polypharmacy, potentially inappropriate medication use, a pain management protocol, and initiation of discharge planning prior to surgery. Now I note here that the majority of vascular surgery patients are not urgent. I mean, there are, you know, um, aortic aneurysms that need rapid repair, but um, many of them are not. And so this model can really help optimize things beforehand. Mm. This paper compared outcomes, um, patient characteristics, and looked at three time periods, the two years before the model was introduced, two years during which the co-management was just getting up and running, which takes a while in the system, and the two years after it had been standardized. What they found was that the surgery service was able to comfortably admit and manage patients with higher levels of comorbidity, and that despite this greater complexity, length of stay declined, 30-day readmissions dropped by a third, hospital-acquired pneumonia and urinary tract infections declined, and fluid overload was practically eliminated. Wow. Yeah, they reported no change in postoperative delirium, interestingly, but postulated that they were detecting it more often under their protocol. Huh. So this too probably constituted a decline. Yeah, reasonable theory. Yeah, that's those are impressive. <laughs> yeah, the second paper is a quasi-experimental study comparing standard care with a collaborative care model around post-operative care of hip fracture patients in Denmark. There, the standard of care is that after several days in the hospital, patients are discharged to a setting that sounds a lot like assisted living here in the states. As is common practice here, the hospital service signs off. In this new model, however, the orthogeriatric hospital service continued to be responsible for care during the 14 days following discharge. And it doesn't mean that they did the day-to-day -day care, but they had formal communication lines established um, with the long-term care providers. And they would send out a nurse if needed to the, from the hospital to draw, transport, and run lab work so that they could get rapid assessment of acute conditions, which we know is a problem sometimes in nursing facilities. Yep. Under this new protocol, 30-day readmissions were more than halved, from 30% in the control group to 14% in the intervention group. The third paper I want to talk about is from here in the United States, and it describes in some detail how one hospital system implemented the standards of the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program, otherwise known as NISQIP. Authored by certified medical director, CMD, and AMDA member, Dr. Paula Lester, along with her colleagues from Mineola, New York. The paper describes exactly how the NISQIP quality measures were implemented for all general surgical, GYN oncology, and orthopedic patients aged 75 and older in that hospital. 
their comprehensive protocol includes three segments, you know, pre-hospital, hospital, and post-hospital. I don't really have time to allow, allow me to describe this in detail. And let me just say this paper goes a long way toward providing a blueprint for others who may want to optimize <clears throat> outcomes by developing comprehensive collaborative care for geriatric surgical patients. It's a great paper. Wow, well, that is, that's a lot. And, uh, you know, as I was just looking at some of the endpoints there and, uh, you know, reducing 30-day hospitalizations, reducing length of stay, uh, you know, reducing some of the complications like fluid overload, those are, seem like super important uh, things. And I, do you know, um, is the expense of uh, adding on this kind of additional protocol, uh, is that going to be something that's prohibitive? Because I would think hospitals and hospital systems would want to jump all over this or, or anybody that's uh, uh, at risk for, uh, for having to pay for the costs. Well, I think Jacqueline can talk about this as well, but you know, whenever you eliminate hospital days, whenever we re reduce length of stay or reduce readmissions, the costs and savings are so great that I have no um, hesitation to say this would be cost-effective. Uh, Mallory, you think the same? Yes. I don't have much to add. I totally agree with that. Okay. Well, great. So uh, we're going to move on. And so one aspect of perioperative care is preoperative management. So Dr. Brown, if you could tell us what this month's Jamda has to say about optimizing care through pre-op management. Absolutely. I'll be talking about three papers, one on preoperative deprescribing, one on prehabilitation of patients before a major elective surgery, and one on preoperative dental referral. The first, preoperative deprescribing for medical optimization of older adults undergoing surgery is a systematic review aiming to summarize the evidence for deprescribing and its effect on outcomes. Seems like a great idea. Hmm. Deprescribing is a favorite principle of mine in caring for older adults. Ask any of my family medicine residents. This systemic, systematic excuse me, review looked at studies in which participants over the age of 65 undergoing planned or emergency surgery had some element of deprescribing or medication-related interventions. <clears throat> Three different methods of deprescribing intervention delivery during the preoperative period were identified. Geriatrician-led, interdisciplinary team-led, and pharmacist-led. Outcomes were related to healthcare utilization, patient outcomes, and medication changes. Overall, results were either positive or neutral, yielding fairly weak evidence towards this practice. However, this non-robust finding is understandable because of tremendous variability in intervention delivery and outcomes, inclusion of non-operative cases in some studies, and low power. More is certainly needed in an effort to determine the utility of this practice. Hmm. The second study, Prehabilitation for Older Adults Undergoing Liver Resection, Getting Patients and Surgeons Up to Speed, takes a closer look at the evidence surrounding prehabilitation in older patients anticipating liver resection and to describe how prehabilitation may be implemented. Prehabilitation can involve a range of activities, including exercise, nutrition and dietary changes, and psychosocial interventions that may occur from several weeks to days preceding a surgical procedure. Older adult patients who participate in these prehabilitation activities may experience improvement in preoperative candidacy as well as a faster postoperative return to baseline, 
and improved postoperative quality of life. However, evidence supporting a reduction in postoperative length of stay and perioperative morbidity and mortality is conflicting. A variety of modalities are available for rehabilitation, but lack consensus and standardization. For a provider desiring to prescribe prehabilitation, multidisciplinary assessments should include a comprehensive geriatric assessment, cardiopulmonary evaluation, and estimate of postoperative liver function. These data can help the clinician determine individual patient needs and select appropriate interventions. In the older adult undergoing liver resection, the current body of literature suggests promising benefits of rehabilitation programs inclusive of functional assessment as well as multimodal interventions. Hmm. Our third study, Impact of Dental Referral Prior to Elective Surgery on Postoperative Outcomes, investigates the impact of preoperative dental care on postoperative outcomes among surgical patients undergoing general anesthesia. The premise is that oral bacteria may contribute to postoperative infectious complications, including postoperative pneumonia or surgical site infections. This retrospective cohort study analyzed clinical records of major surgical patients at a university hospital between 2016 and 2018. The primary outcome was postoperative infectious complications. Secondary outcomes were postoperative inflammation markers, such as C-reactive protein and fever, and economic outcomes such as postoperative length of hospital stay and medical expenses. The group receiving a dental referral before surgery saw a significantly lower rate of postoperative infection and shorter fever duration. Stratified analysis by age revealed that the positive impact of dental care was present in all age groups with the largest treatment effects observed among patients younger than 60. This study indicates that rather than just for subgroups like older persons and persons with um, cognitive deficits or mental health disorders, preoperative dental referral could be beneficial to a much broader range of patients. Wow. Well, that is really great stuff. Uh, Really all of those articles. And I know that deprescribing will resonate uh, with a lot of our listeners, uh, undoubtedly, Uh, Although I have to admit that sometimes my patients and their families aren't quite as enthusiastic as you and I and your family medicine residents, but uh, on the notion of prehabilitation, that just seems so intuitive that it would be helpful, you know, before a major abdominal surgery to get somebody sort of optimized and, you know, yeah, functional assessment and whatnot. So, but I assume that these findings would extrapolate to other kinds of procedures beyond a hepatic resection, right? I would, I would have to believe so. Um, I think this is looking at a pretty specific group of individuals, but I just can't see any harm in um, increasing people's activity and really getting them into the best shape that they could be going into any kind of surgery. Yeah, great. Well, and thanks for the reminder about the importance of oral health. I, you know, there can be little doubt that poor dentition, you know, poor uh, gingival status. Uh, places people at higher risk of, uh, you know, a variety of post-operative complications and, uh, you know, this sort of pro-inflammatory uh, uh, situation that we see. But I, I think we often don't give it the attention it deserves uh, in long-term care, even though a lot of our nursing home residents do receive somewhat regular uh, dental checkups. So uh, thanks for putting that on our list of other things to to think about before we are contemplating elective surgery especially. 
So now let's move on to our guest editor, Dr. Portelli Tremont, an actual surgeon. Uh, our listeners know that a particularly challenging situation is when a patient needs surgery urgently or emergently. So Jacqueline, if you can help us understand how to approach these high-risk scenarios, you know, when somebody has to uh, undergo the knife within a short time frame. Absolutely. So one place to start, and I think one of the great examples of collaboration between medical and surgical professionals are the perioperative guidelines that were jointly developed by both the American College of Surgeons and the American Geriatric Society. As Mallory alluded to, you know, these guidelines and guidelines for surgery in general are most optimal for planned or elective cases. You know, in, in other words, we as medical providers have time, time to plan, discuss with colleagues, prehabilitate, and really optimize our patients as needed. We also know that elective surgery in older adults specifically they actually have similar outcomes to our younger adults, but that does not hold true for emergency surgery. Mm. Older adults generally fare much worse than their younger counterparts after emergency or urgent surgery. So the question that you know, I think that many of our listeners might be asking now is, so what do I do when that patient presents to the emergency department always in the middle of the night with peritonitis or an intracranial bleed after a fall. What are my options and how can we think about management and optimization in, in, in a systematic way, but also a time critical manner, all while honoring those standardized guidelines? And I think to answer this question, I wanna start by pulling in some of the key principles that we address in the review paper in our special issue applying evidence-based principles to guide emergency surgery in older adults. You know, first, one theme that's fairly consistent across studies in this issue and other issues of JAMDA is that geriatric co-management improves surgical outcomes. So developing an algorithm for how and when to integrate medical providers becomes a critical aspect of surgical decision-making. To do this, it's important for every provider involved in patient care to understand the time frame that we have to develop that plan. Generally speaking, surgery is considered elective, which we've already talked about, semi-urgent, urgent, and then emergent. Emergent cases, as the name suggests, are most sensitive and definitely need to the go, go to the OR within two hours from patient presentation. On the other end of the spectrum, we have semi-urgent cases, which affords us the most time to plan. And that typically means about 48 to 72 hours. And then urgent cases fall somewhere in the middle of those two. That triage classification is based both on patient acuity and clinical presentation, as well as the actual surgical diagnosis. So for example, Dr. Sloan mentioned this earlier, you know, an impending rupture of an aortic aneurysm, that's gonna be considered emergent. That has to go to the OR quickly. But acute cholangitis, for example, or a traumatic hip fracture, they're probably more semi-urgent or urgent. So now all of that said, with that timeline in mind, we can decide when to engage with our consultants or primary care providers. In the case of truly emergent surgery, time may really only allow for a phone call to the on-call medical team. And this is to get a sense of that patient's pre-morbid condition or functioning, their pre-morbid prognosis. With semi-urgent surgery, we may have more time to get a more informal or more, let me start that again. With semi-urgent surgery, 
we may be able to have a formal in-person geriatric focused preoperative evaluation. And this part I think is really important. Note that my recommendation is not if we need to engage with co-management, it's when we engage with co-management. And then lastly, and I say this as a surgical trainee, and I cannot emphasize this enough, that there are some components of the pre-op eval in older adults that must be done regardless of the emergent or non-emergent nature of the diagnosis. For some of those medical colleagues listening, this probably seems incredibly obvious, but I'm going to say it anyway. When an older adult needs emergency surgery, we must always evaluate for predictors of poor postoperative outcomes. And we know these are predictors of poor outcomes. Frailty, cognitive impairment, social determinants of health, and multiple morbidity. We must talk about patient-centered outcomes and be frank in those informed consent conversations. We have to talk about mortality and risk of death, but we also have to talk about concepts like readmission and ICU lingering, the odds of recovering if you as the patient actually develop a complication, and maybe most importantly to the patient, their functional recovery. One of my favorite tools to guide these conversations is the best case, worst case framework developed out of the University of Wisconsin. And then lastly, we must always discuss and be aware of goals of care and engage in advanced directive conversations. And here, I just want to say that I use the term we loosely. Certainly, the surgeon of record must be aware of these conversations, but they can really be had by any member of the collaborative care team. The important aspect is that these conversations are actually had, communicated, and importantly, incorporated into surgical decision-making. And then lastly, I really, I'd be remiss not to mention how valuable it is for all members of the patient care team to have a general understanding of those post-operative outcomes that are important and red flag symptoms, which have implications for when the patient's in the hospital and also after discharge. We discussed the NISQIP surgical risk calculator among others, but I also wanna highlight results from the study by Quinn and colleagues on emergency surgery for diverticulitis. In this study, they found that nearly 30 to 60% of patients over the age of 65 are discharged to rehabilitation or a skilled nursing facility, regardless of their procedure for diverticulitis. Patients who undergo a partial colectomy with end colostomy in general tend to be sicker. And in this study, we saw exactly that. More patients presented with shock and perforation in this group. But even after adjustment, patients between 65 and 79 who had the other procedure, the loop ileostomy, were nearly 2.5 times more likely to be readmitted within 30 days than patients with an end colostomy. If you deal with these patients frequently, it's pretty easy to hypothesize that this result is due to dehydration secondary to high ileostomy output, which for a surgeon is a known postoperative complication. But importantly, it highlights the need for care plans with the post-acute care facilities and then primary care doctors to include instructions for ileostomy management, recommendations for electrolyte or fluid depletion, and reasons to follow up earlier with the surgical team. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, I just want to point out that if any of our listeners are interested in hearing more about these geriatric models of care, I point them to both the American College of Surgeon and American Geriatric Society 
guidelines, as well as the POPS program out of the UK, or proactive care of older adults undergoing surgery. Well, great. Uh, thanks so much, Jacqueline. And I, I want to echo the sentiment about uh, the importance of goals of care conversations. And I, I know some surgeons who are very expert at having those conversations. And I know other surgeons who, let's just say, aren't. Um, <laughs> and by the same applies to uh, regular, uh, you know, anybody, I guess. It's, it's, but I, I do think it's so important before putting somebody through some major uh, emergency surgery that uh, those, those, important goals of care, whether you want to call it advanced care planning or, you know, in the moment sort of uh, discussion of, of risks, benefits, alternatives, and what is most important to the patient, like what would be a, an acceptable versus an unacceptable outcome. Um, even though you, you know, if you got to have somebody on the table in two hours, you may not have a chance to have a really robust conversation, but just putting that plug in, uh, and I appreciate your, your covering it, that that's very important because how often do we see people who have undergone some sort of uh, emergency surgery and they're wishing that they never had or their family is saying, well, if we had known this, we would have never done it. So uh, thanks, for, thanks for bringing that up. Um, and you know, the issue about the, uh, like the ileostomy and so on, when I get a, a post-op patient uh, who has come from the hospital uh, into the nursing home, usually it's, you know, uh, see the surgeon in 30 days or something like that. And I, I think uh, it certainly would be very helpful to have uh, more guidance on co-management, even if the surgeon isn't actually seeing them. So like you say, you've got high output from a from an ileostomy or something like that, how often should we be checking labs? You know, what's our what's our threshold for starting some IV hydration? So, any um, any suggestions on what our listeners can do? Let's say when they're um, inheriting somebody who's recently post-op. Yeah, no, that's that's a really great question. Um, before I just want to say, you know, one thing about the goals of care. It's one of my mentors once taught me. You know, the easy part is cutting doing the operation. The harder part is figuring out if you should do the operation. And yeah. that's really how I approach a lot of patient care, you know, it's yeah, right. Well, these conversations, I mean, there's talk about, uh, you know, considering, I guess we can, we can bill for an advanced care planning uh, visit if it takes 16 minutes or more. So, you know, it is sort of a skilled procedure in and of itself. Right. Yeah. But, you know, to, to answer your question about post-op, I think, you know, if nothing else, having that line of communication open between the post-acute care teams, whether it's, you know, members of at the skilled nursing facility, or even just the patient's primary care doctor, you know, as an outpatient, knowing how to contact the surgeon and the surgical team and in a timely manner, um, like one of the papers that we discussed earlier is, is going to be paramount. You know, certainly as a surgeon, I don't know nearly as much as any of our listeners about geriatrics or really primary medicine, right? And the reverse is going to be true. We don't expect our medical colleagues to know everything that we do about surgery, but really fostering that communication and that, that open relationship, I think is going to be important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, more specifically, we frankly, as surgeons, we just need to do a better job in our discharge instructions across the board. We need to be specific um, <laughs> about exactly the things you mentioned this amount of ileostomy output is too much. And if we get 
to that threshold, this is what we do about it. And this is when you call us. Um, so I think just, you know, again, increasing that communication, both orally and on paper is a great first step. Well, great. Yeah. And let, let's just, you know, in fairness, surgeons aren't the only ones who don't always do the best, uh, give the best discharge instructions. So just, just want to be fair. Uh, and uh, well, that's great. Uh, let's see, Dr. Brown, Dr. Sloan, any, any comments before we wrap up? No, it's just been a fun dis discussion. Um, I think um, these issues are just are important and it's helpful to think about them in advance. Yeah, I want to just thank you so much for putting this issue together. It was really a great idea. And, um, you know, it's, it's important stuff, right? The, it's uh, decisions that need to be made and uh, we want to do what's right and you know, honor the preferences of our patients and uh, get them the, the best care they can, whether that's surgical care, medical care, everything. Um, so, well, great. That's going to wrap it up for this Jammed on the Go podcast. Under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Philip Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of associate editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, continues to be an impactful resource in post-acute and long-term care, geriatrics, and beyond, now in surgery too. So please <laughs> take a look at the April 22 theme issue on surgery in older persons. Dr. Sloan, Dr. Brown, Dr. Portelli-Tremont, thanks so much for spending your time with JAMDA on the go today. Thanks Thank so you. much for having me. Mm -hmm. And references for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. Till next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Jamda On The Go. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our learning management system at apex.paltc.org. That's A-P-E-X dot P-A-L-T-C dot org. Click on the podcast and follow the link to this episode.